All right. Perfect. Well, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are working through that book of the Bible, and it is page 986 in your pew Bible. If you're not used to using one, we want to help you uh, follow along. And we are discussing an interesting theme here in verses 13 through 16, where the gospel begins to face opposition. Gospel opposition. And you don't have to watch the news for too long. Even get a headline, maybe an email, and realize that we currently are in a tsunami of a moral revolution in our country. And that tsunami is no longer kind of levied and stays back just in Hollywood. That tsunami of the moral revolution isn't just in the academic liberal colleges. In fact, the seismic waves have crashed into every neighborhood, every school, uh, every place of employment, and we could probably say even every family. And yet, as Christians, our, our goal is to build bridges with unbelieving neighbors. Our goal is to build bridges with unbelieving co-workers and friends and family. But just as a tsunami kind of displaces sediment in places that it's not supposed to be, oftentimes Christians that get caught up in this current of what is going on in our culture, the surge comes and we get carried and displaced and put on platforms that we never expected to be. Platforms and situations that we would not even want to be. We find ourselves as Christians in the spotlight with the camera rolling the press ready to print, and we are getting asked tough questions. Recently, Christian artist Lauren Daigle, who is someone that we listen to in our house often, uh, beautiful music, she was in the headlines when she was asked about her position on a moral issue. It happens to be the issue of homosexuality. And here's what she said when she was asked if homosexuality is sinful. I can't honestly answer on that. In the sense of, I have too many people that I love, and they are homosexuals. I can't say one way or the other, I'm not God. When people ask questions like that, I just say, read the Bible and find out for yourselves. And when you find out, let me know, because I'm learning too. Now, she's not an outspoken person on sexual ethics. It is not fun or pleasant to watch a profession of professing Christian, get pigeonholed or ambushed. The interview had nothing to do about that. But because she was a Christian, they just wanted to dial in on that issue. And it's the same thing that can happen to all of us. Just being a Christian today is enough for people to pursue you and to want to ask you pointed, hard questions. Are you ready? How would you answer how will the church of Jesus Christ respond when so many of those around us think that what we believe is intolerant and perhaps even hate speech? Are we ready? To be clear, no amount of PR work is ever going to rescue the church from being thought of as backwards or even bigoted. You can't out-nice your way into some cultural acceptance any longer. But I also want to warn against the other feeling that we as Christians have, and that is that maybe we will seclude ourselves and we'll listen to the propaganda uh, that we like to share among ourselves so that we can kind of feel sorry for ourselves. 
that we can get together and blame the media for all of our troubles, that's not going to help us be ready to answer for the hope that is within us either. Actually, Colby's Bible study about two weeks ago had an intense discussion on should we think of Christians in America really suffering. It's a question of degree. We don't want to think more highly of our suffering than it deserves. But how are we going to be ready? Well, we can be ready by recalling the example of John the Baptist, who was beheaded for bearing witness to Christians about sexual ethics. We can remember the apostles who rejoiced to suffer for the name of Christ in Acts 5.41. Those examples remind us that it is the responsibility of every Christian to speak the truth when called upon. And that Christians have the privilege to speak life where death reigns. Persevering through persecution is what the majority world of Christians go through today. And for us, even in America, we cannot bypass the cross. There is no magic formula to not carry a cross. Our Savior carried a cross, and it is our opportunity to use the cross to witness, to persevere through gospel opposition. We need to remember these three things from 1 Thessalonians 2. Here they are, if you're a note taker. Believe God's word. Imitate God's people, trust God's plan. Believe God's word, imitate God's people, trust God's plan for whatever it costs because it will be worth it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Are you there? Are you there? Are you awake? All right. We know the youth leaders at snow camp are not awake, but you guys slept in your own bed. All right. Let's get with it. Here we are, 13 through 16. Paul is thanking God for them. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus, the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Wow. In the midst of gospel opposition, Paul is comparing two different types of people here. The Thessalonians who endured persecution and the Jews who inflicted persecution. The Thessalonians were a people that were recipients of God's word, verse 13. But yet the Jews were only recipients of God's wrath because they ultimately did not receive God's word. They rejected it. There was people like the Thessalonians who assisted the spread of the gospel. We learned that in chapter 1. And now we see that the Jews are actually people that hindered the work of the gospel. And so there's a stark contrast here in verses 13 through 16, a people that Paul thanks God for, for how they respond to God's word. And then there's a people that Paul trusts that God will judge for persecuting Christians. John MacArthur, there's a people to be happy for and a people to be sad for in this passage. And I think that does kind of summarize it. But we're going to notice three things in order to persevere. We all have to persevere in our Christian faith. How do you do it? The first thing to persevere, especially when it comes to gospel opposition, is you have to believe God's word. Notice that that's the very first thing that separates the true believers of the Thessalonians 
from the Jews is their response to God's word. Look again with me at verse 13. It says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, here's the first step, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which also is at work in you believers. They received the word of God. That They accepted it into their hearts, and it reminds us of how Paul talks about how the gospel spreads in Romans 10. Romans 10, 17 says, for faith comes by hearing. You heard this word of God, and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10 also says, though, you, don't, you can't just hear it, you have to accept it. Romans 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So right off the bat, Paul is saying, I'm so thankful for your reception of the word. You heard the word of God's message. You received it. You took it in. And it really became your own. You owned it. And it is our ability to stand firm against persecution with courage, with conviction, that really comes down to this issue of what do you believe about God's word? What do you believe about the Bible? The Thessalonians had to face that question. And you today have to face that question. Is the word of God the word of man or the word of God? Now, whenever you go about trying to prove that the Bible has authority, that it really is the word of God, sometimes you get questions from people that are skeptics, people that are, that are seeking. We love these questions, but they kind of say, hey, Josh, when you prove the Bible is authoritative by using the Bible, it's kind of circular reasoning. How can you do that? And we just want you to know that we welcome those questions. We expect people here every single week to be here that are still trying to figure out what do they believe about the Bible? And is it God's word? And should I build my life upon it? Is really the rock on which to stand? And so they ask, how can you reference the Bible? How can you use the Bible to prove that God's word is authoritative? It's a great question. And here's the answer. You, you can't establish the supreme authority of your supreme authority by using a lesser authority. Does that make sense? You can't establish that this is the supreme authority unless you use that as your supreme authority because if you go anywhere else, you're actually in that other thing, whatever that is, is actually the supreme authority and it actually lessens what you have. So if we were to go outside the Bible and say, I know based upon this peer-reviewed journal article that God's word is true, now, now what really has the ultimate authority? That peer-reviewed journal article. That, that commentator says the Bible is true. Well, now we're saying that that guy has more authority than the Bible. All of us do that. All of us have something that we go to, something or someone that we use as our final kind of arbiter of truth. Some of us go to our parents. Some of us respect academics. Some of us respect science. Whatever we're going to, it is the ultimate question of, says who? We all have to answer that question. Based upon what? Says who? And for Christians, who says? The Bible. The Bible says it. That settles it. So we believe it. The Bible says it. That settles it. And I believe it. And Paul says here, you receive this word of God. Because you heard it from everyday human beings. You, you heard it through us, but you didn't just receive it as the word of men. You received it as the word of God. And I just think it's noteworthy 
that Paul says here, you heard it from us. There is a human component here. These Thessalonians received an oral word from everyday people, just like you this morning are receiving an oral word from God's word. And so historian Ian Murray says this, preaching is not men teaching from the Bible. It's God teaching from the Bible through men. I set out to do the Thessalonians study to really jump into what does it mean for discipleship in chapter 2, and I love it. And every sermon that I've gotten to preach has always been a conviction about what a pastor is supposed to be. I did not get into this book <laughs> thinking of that it was supposed to just be preaching at me every single week. But just so you guys know how God's word is working in my heart, thinking that preaching is not men teaching from the Bible, but it's God teaching from the Bible through men, <sighs> just feel the weight of responsibility. Thank you for giving us time to study Thank you for giving us time to prepare. It is, it's an overwhelming work and uh, just one of the minor applications in my life. And so when you receive God's word, Paul goes on to say here, you receive it as it really is, the word of God. Let's look at that last phrase, which is at work in you believers. When you receive God's word, guess what? It works. Give it time, just like Novocaine, it will do its job, okay? It will work on you. And that word there, it's at work in you believers, is a supernatural working. Whenever that word is used in the New Testament, it always refers to God's supernatural action. And so God is supernaturally working through his word. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Of this you have heard. Before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. God's word works. It works because it is active, Hebrews 4.12. It works because it is certain, Isaiah 55.10. It works because it is powerful, Romans 1.16. It works because it is living, John 6.63. It works because it is nourishing, like the sincere milk of the word, 1 Peter 2.2. It works because it is sanctifying. Sanctify them by thy truth. My word is truth, right? So the goal of hearing God's word each week in church is not only for information. It's also for affection. It's for worship. It's ultimately for obedience. God's word that you receive works in them and it works in us. So church, do you ever look around and see what is going on in our congregation and see people who the light has gone on for them and they understand that now it isn't just the words of men, that it's the word of God speaking to me. Have you looked around and just given thanks like Paul does here? The application is to give thanks. Have you ever paused and said, Lord, I thank you for the work that your spirit is doing in our brother Christian Davis. Someone who used to come to church, read the sermon, fold it over, and try to stay awake. Now he's in it and it's alive and I would argue it's because his dad read the Bible that year and it changed his life. Do you give thanks for people like Terry Hammond when you go into the hospital and you see his Gospel of Luke open and you read to him 
the, the thanks of the ten lepers to go back and praise God for his healing. And he goes, that was the passage I was just reading. It works. He's a witness to his sister doing a Bible study at the house, just reading the Bible with her. The George family reading God's word. Aubrey Engel, who believes she's learned more from God's word in the past six months than her whole life. Open it, read it, feed me it. It is alive, it's sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. We need it to work because look at verse 14. To persevere, not only do you have to believe God's word, but to persevere, you need it to work so that you can imitate God's people. So to persevere, it's not enough just how you initially respond to God's word. There's always a lot of excitement when the gospel comes to you for the first time. But if you really want to persevere in the faith, it's not just that start. It has to sustain itself. And one of the ways it sustains itself is by imitating God's people. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. What tempts you to give up? Probably the first thing is you have doubts. Is what I'm really fighting for true? That would cause me to give up when things get tough. So you need to know that the Bible's true. You need to know that it's authoritative. That'll keep you in the game. The other thing that might tempt you to give up in, in your Christian life is looking around and going, I don't really see anybody else running with me. It's like I'm the only one. You kind of get your eyes and go, whew, this is tough. I think Elijah, right, in the Old Testament, and God had to open his eyes see that there are other people that hadn't bowed the knee yet. You need others, and how we persevere through trials shows that we are true Christians. Christ told his disciples in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And then he gives this ominous image of what a Christian minister is when he said this, behold, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Church, we're sending you out in about 30 minutes to be lambs among wolves. Expect persecution. And if you're going, I just want to stay in my little holy huddle pen with other sheep, I understand that we all want to flee suffering, right? We all want to live in safer neighborhoods. We all buy air conditioners for the one week in August. Okay, uh, We all take aspirin when we have a headache. Uh, we, we all come out of the rain or the snow. All of us normally choose not to put ourselves in danger every hour. That's normal. But the word of God was at work in the Thessalonians, and it was producing this invincible hope that enabled them to suffer rather than to give up the treasure of Christ for the sake of comfort, or for their safety. The word of God worked in their life to allow them to choose suffering over giving up the treasure of Christ. And that is exactly what Christ taught his word does in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, there is a parable, which is a story that Christ used as basically a metaphor. And he pictures this guy who goes up and he sows seed. He just throws it out there. And the seed falls on different kinds of ground. And that different kinds of ground is like our human heart, if you're not used to hearing that story. And some of it's a hard heart, and the devil comes in right away. The seed gets preached. It gets thrown out there. It doesn't bear fruit. Another kind of ground, though, was where the seed did go in, and it did spring up instantly. And you're going, oh, wow, someone's responding to God's word. Every pastor likes that when someone begins to respond to God's word. Christians get excited about that. But then it says the cares of this world, 
the persecutions, the sickness, and the hardship choke that word, and it died. Suffering, persecution, sickness, our church has experienced a ton of that, death, all of those things threaten our faith in the goodness of God, and it tempts us to leave Christ. Suffering, persecution, sickness tempts you to doubt the goodness of God and to leave Christ. But for those where the seed has gone deep and it is working, it frees you to suffer for Christ rather than surrender Christ. That's how Satan's defeated. We resist him with one eye in God's word and one eye on other believers. Any dad in here ever buy a birthday present, Christmas present, where some assembly is required? Any parent, uncle, or anybody have to do that? I love this analogy because we as a youth group were over at Jim Batchelder's house one time organizing uh, to have a youth group meeting over there, and he bought new tables to basically allow the kids to all have a seat outside. Generous gift. So we're out there, and he trusts us as youth group people to assemble these outdoor lawn furniture. So we're working on it, and we're thinking that if we all do the same thing at the same time, it'll be faster, unless you all do the same thing wrong, and you have to all do it, okay? And, and, and what was a struggle was putting these chairs together. We're following the schematics. All we're doing is looking at the schematics, a little picture, but there's not a lot of detail there. And we're trying to put it together, and we're realizing that the support bars that are going to keep the chair legs from going like this and somebody falling through, which would be funny in youth group, but, you know, we want it to last, we realize that we're not doing it right. And so we stop looking at the schematics, and we say, let's go look at the box. Let's look at the picture, the living color picture. And what we noticed is that they had a name brand logo on the chair, and the logo should be up where you could read it. You could see that it was by this company. All of a sudden, we go back to our little schematic, and we flip the bar around and flip it over. It works perfectly. Now, we had to undo eight chairs because we all had our own Allen's wrench, and we were own doing it ourselves. But here's the thing. You need the schematics of God's word to see what you're supposed to do. But it really does help if you zoom out and you see it lived out in living color. And you go, that's who I'm supposed to follow after. Read Christian biographies. Actually, here's a better point than read Christian biographies. Friends, do you realize how vital it is to be in church on Sunday? Sunday after Sunday because Satan loves to isolate you. When he can get you alone, he is a killer. So don't neglect meeting together. Why? You're here today, but your presence here today is not just for today. It is for five years from now. It's for 20 years from now. It's for a time when you find yourself alone in a cancer ward. It's for a time when you find yourself isolated from Christian fellowship in a desolate place. It's for a time when maybe you are in prison for your faith. It's for a time when you're in terrible turmoil within your soul, that dark night of the soul. It's for a time that many of us have experienced this year where you are alone at home in the middle of the night after you buried your loved one. And there are seeds that are being planted today in your heart that may not blossom until many days from now. 
and it is the sowing that God is doing now on these normal, average, lame Sundays that actually God can bring to remembrance when you're in that dark night from something that you heard. You don't remember the content of the sermon. We know that. But maybe God would bring a word to you. Maybe it's a song lyric that comes to your mind. Maybe it's a person who all of a sudden their face comes to mind. And you go, they taught me the word. They invested in me. They want to see me make it. I'm not going to give up. Maybe it's just seeing one of the praise team's face glowing as they're considering Christ when they're singing. And you're going, man, that radiant face right now, I just needed that to keep going. Maybe it's a faithful follower of Christ who's gone before you. And you saw them live well, you saw them die well, and you go, man, they did that, I can. And you know what? You really can only have those memories, and you really only need them when it's too late. You gotta be here now to have those then. Because when you're in it, I wish I would have memorized more scripture. They took away my Bible. Well, now what are you gonna do? Are you guys a praise team song? That 7-Eleven, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. I mean, that might be good. But wouldn't you like to have more to rely on in those dark nights of the soul? And so suffering should make you appreciate the church. Peter and John, they are persecuted. You know where they went right after they got on trial? Listen to Acts 4.23. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They got persecuted. Where'd they go? Right back to a group of believers. It's where you find your encouragement. It builds solidarity. Why we pray for missionaries, why we remind you of what's going on in China or in Tanzania, because we have things that we can learn from them. And when you realize that we are not the only ones going through suffering, or our country is not the only one that has political upheaval and the moral revolution that's going on, we can learn from our brothers and sisters in China and in Africa, the UAE, Pakistan, Nigeria, because Paul says, don't be moved by these afflictions. You know that we were destined for this. Christianity has always been tied up with suffering because Christ suffered. And that's what he goes on to talk about here in verses 15 through 16. The world rejected Christ, the world rejected the prophets that were before him, and the world rejects the apostles after him. Look at verses 15 through 16 and see our final point, to persevere we have to believe God's word, imitate his church, but also trust that God will judge. These Jews, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God. In this interesting phrase, they oppose all mankind by hindering from speaking to the Gentiles. that They might be saved. So always they fell up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. These verses read like a rap sheet. They killed Jesus, they killed the prophets, they kicked out the apostles, they displeased God, they're opposing all mankind. How should we understand Paul's vehement outburst here against the Jews? It's explosive words. I mean, just to read it again, there have been some that have used these words to prove that Paul was anti-Semitic. You can understand that just by reading it. Seems like he hates the Jews. Certain people group, is that true? We'll look at it. But I think this, even as vehement as this is and explosive as it is, it really has good theology about the nature of sin, the need of salvation, and God's ultimate judgment. This section, verses 15 through 16, should first warn us that not everybody receives God's word. 
Some people reject God's word. Wouldn't you agree that there's probably no one who read the Bible more in Jesus' day than scribes and Pharisees? If you're new to church, scribes and Pharisees are religious leaders. They read the Old Testament better than everybody. They had laws. They were exact. They really analyzed it with a microscope. They had the Bible in their minds. They had the Bible in their mouths. And yet Jesus spoke to the scribes and Pharisees. If you read through the Gospels, he spoke to them as if they've never read them before in their life. In fact, Christ says, have you not read the scriptures to scribes and Pharisees six times in the Gospels? Can you imagine how insulting that would be? Your job whatever it is, just fill in the blank, and someone comes to you and says, have you not read? Have you not read? How could you do what you're doing? (laughs) Have you not read the scriptures? That would be really insulting to me as a pastor. After after I'm done with the sermon, I come down and you guys say, Josh, have you ever read 1 Thessalonians before? It's like, I thought I did all week. And here's the point. They could read the scriptures and they could not see the Savior. They could read the scriptures and not see the Savior that was staring them right in the face. And so the question really for all of us is, how blind do you have to be to miss that? How blind do you have to be to miss that? If you're new to church, that is the essence of sin. Another way of thinking about sin is spiritual blindness. You're spiritually blind to the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan has veiled your eyes from seeing the glory of the gospel in the light of Christ. So what missionary, what pastor, what evangelist in our church, in church you are faithful in that, has not looked upon a person that you've been witnessing to and not thought, if these people in the Bible didn't get it, and they started God's word, surely it's going to be impossible with my fill-in-the-blank. You know what Jesus would say? I'd agree with you. With man, it is impossible. What we are up against in sharing the gospel with people is an impossible task. But with God, all things are possible. Right? Our hope is that when the gospel is preached in the power of the Spirit, God can do what man can't. And so... From the beginning of time, God took darkness and he said, let there be light. And the analogy that he wants you to have confidence in this morning, believer, as weary as you are, as blue in the face as you are, sharing the gospel with a beloved friend or a loved one, he wants you to remember that the God who said, let there be light in physical creation is also the same God who says, let there be light in spiritual creation. And it is no more difficult for him. And that should encourage us, church, that our evangelism, though we can get better at it, though we can learn different ways of building bridges, it ultimately isn't about how slick your presentation is. It isn't ultimately about what gimmick you want to use. It isn't ultimately about how articulate you are and what questions you have. Just share it. And we hope that coming here for the past three years of sharing the gospel every Sunday, that you see us just saying the gospel, that Jesus Christ came. He was a Jew. He was rejected by his people. He was crucified as a slave by the Romans. And that he died for your sins as an innocent man. And he rose again 
adding the signature to the package when the UPS guy comes and says, hey, is this package yours? You have to give your signature. God gave his signature on Jesus Christ as the one who defeated death by raising him from the dead. It's paid for. And what he wants you to do, this rejected Jew, this criminal crucified by the Romans, what he wants you to do is to repent of your sins and put your faith in him. And to acknowledge that for the rest of your life, that he is your Lord and you are willing to follow him. Josh, who would want to respond to that? It's not, I don't know. There's your best life now. He'll do this for you. He'll do that for you. No, your life can get worse, just like the Thessalonians. So we don't believe in this life to eat, drink, and be merry. We ultimately believe in a resurrection and an eternity. And that's where it all gets settled. We would be most miserable if our faith and our morals were only to give you a happy life now. We have to believe in an eternal hope and resurrection. And so we offer that to all. If you would repent and believe, you can trust Christ as your Savior. And he can open your eyes to see the light of the glory of Christ. Somebody that you used to disdain now becomes someone that you are in love with. And that was what Paul was sent to do, to open eyes that you would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As upset as Paul is about what the Jews did, Paul is not any more upset at them, any more aggressive, because you know what? All that he says that they've done Paul himself did. Why is Paul not anti-Semitic? There's nothing in this list that Paul didn't do himself. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church. Paul murdered people. He opposed the work of God and opposed all mankind. He didn't want the church to grow. Read through Acts 8 and 9 this afternoon and you will see that. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, Verses 15 through 16, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If you read this passage and you think that there are people that are just too far gone, Paul says, I'm your best case scenario. I did what they did and God had mercy on me to show that there is patience. So whether you're here and you're five years old and you still need to trust Christ or whether you're 95 years old and you've delayed that decision your entire life, Paul says, look at my life for how patient God is. Still keep witnessing, church. Still keep praying, asking God to open the light open their eyes to see the light, and we should have an attitude of love. An attitude of love because Christ ought to forgive them. Stephen, when he was stoned, said, don't hold their sins against them. Paul loved his fellow Jews so much, he said, I wish that I could give up my own salvation for them. That's how much he loves them. And so those of us that are Christ's followers, the only attitude that we should have to unbelievers is to love them even when they hate us. To love them even when they hate us. That's how we are going to persevere. In Christian life, in the Christian ministry, you persevere by believing God's truth, imitating other believers, and staying on mission. Sharing the gospel is essential for all mankind. 
the Bible teaches that all people are without hope if they don't have the gospel. And so we preach every Sunday, there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. This is the choice that you have this morning. It's a choice that was before the Thessalonians and the Jews. Will you be a person this morning who receives the word? That's your salvation. Will you be a people that imitate other believers? That's your sanctification, your growth. Will you be a person who perseveres to the end? That's your glorification. Or will you be a person who rejects the word, hinders believers from sharing the word, and ultimately a person who endures punishment? The choices this morning are conversion or condemnation. And Christ says, you can turn from your sins and trust Christ today. He's made a way. There's nothing between you and him except for the prayer of God, open my eyes and I may see the glory of Christ. Church, we need to get ready. There is amazing missionary power in taking seriously God's word. We have a summer, actually it's already started, a season right now of intense evangelism. From our community dinners to invite people to, to see what a church life is like as a corporate witness. It's a great place we have Richard Burley, who's, gonna, who's our local evangelist, who's going to be living in the parsonage from May through October. He's going to push us out into neighborhoods and streets, share the gospel with our friends. There's missions trips planned all summer long. There's so many ways to be able to persevere in your faith, but believe God's word, imitate other believers that are going through suffering, and trust that God will ultimately judge those that maybe are rejecting you for whatever little bit of suffering we've gone through as Americans. And with that, if you want to have a time of reflection to see what God's doing in your life, then we'll stand and sing our closing hymn. I think uh, Rachel will play through it once. And then, uh, and also the reeds, do you mind playing the violin again? Yeah, awesome, thanks. <laughs>